Welcome to the HR Happy Hour Show with Steve and Trish. Trish, I'm interviewing you for a job. What would you say is your biggest weakness? You know, Steve, I would have to say it's that I'm a perfectionist. Isn't that the worst question ever in the history of interviewing? It is. And to be fair to our listeners, as we were preparing to record this, I probably spent five minutes plus trying to adjust my lighting so that it was perfect and aligned with your lighting. So it, I have had people answer that way as like a million years ago when that was a question to ask. Is it still a question? I ask? think it I probably know. does come up more often than we care to admit. There's probably some folks out there still asking it because they think it reveals something or other. I don't know what, maybe it reveals that. Uh, yeah, but, the, if you, but if you say I'm a perfectionist, people think that's like a cop out. No, it actually can be a negative. Like truly, I just wasted five minutes of your time doing that. So the, 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 what's the yours? Oh, I don't, I, the real answer is probably just attention to detail, right? Because that, that's right. probably, you know, I'm more of a big, bigger picture, try to, conceptual. I'm rough with some of the details and we're, we're working really hard actually in our business to keep more organized this year. And I think we're starting to make some strides. Hopefully I am, but uh, we that are, would be, that would be, uh, let me just ask you this though. I think that it's good in an interview situation to be honest about that and to say, I am a big thinker. I actually, you know, when you're, when you're younger and people tell you always say you're detail oriented, right? Well, the truth is, is that that not everyone is naturally. You can still have moments or on projects where you do pay attention to detail. But I'm like you, I'm not a detailed thinker. I am a big picture thinker and there's real value to that. So I don't know, if you're listening to this and you're in the interview situation and, and someone asks, feel free to say, I'm not a detail oriented person. However, I do have tools and tricks that I use when necessary. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So, all right. We thought that'd be good. For Welcome to the interview show. Yeah. <laughs> interview advice show. Oh my God. There's so much of that out there. Please stop writing blog posts about like with resume advice. Cause every bit of resume advice has been written. Every bit of interviewing advice has already been written. Just Google oh. it. There are 17 million articles on both those subjects. All right. That's can we not also say, is. wait, can we also say if you write a trends report and it says that remote working is a trend, I'm going to burn your report. I'm just saying that. Anybody who said that, that's ridiculous. There you that go. is not a trend. That's just reality. Like that's what we're, we already know that's a trend, right? It's not a, anyway. All right. Let's do the show Trish, that we, we are show. here to do. This is our favorite show. My favorite show that we do on the HR Happy Hour podcast. This is the Workplace Movie Hall of Fame show. Trish, we are going to break down a great movie from 1995, Apollo 13, before That's we get right. into that, and I'll have a couple of statistics about the movie I want to share first, we must thank our show sponsors, Trish. I want to first thank our friends at Work Human. Uh, the world is watching the leaders of today and tomorrow, and modern employees want a workplace where they're respected, seen, appreciated, and heard, and they are demanding it. Employees have the right to a human workplace, and you have the power to create one. Thriving organizations like Cisco, Merck, and LinkedIn have realized the immense benefits of putting the human at the center of work. And you can get your copy of the excellent book, Making Work Human, on Amazon and learn how. That's right. And we also have to thank our friends at Paychex for uh, sponsoring us as well. And you know, some of our friends at Paychex, especially Tracy, Volkman is a huge fan of the Workplace Movie Hall of Fame show. So this one we will dedicate. Can we do it like a song dedication? Yes. I'd like to dedicate today's show to Tracy. 
at paychecks. Um, no, in all seriousness, Paychex really is one of the leading providers of HR, payroll, retirement, and insurance solution for business of all sizes. And 2020 has been tough, right? We all know this, but what they have done is to really help companies think about their culture and, and being efficient and using solutions and tools to enable, enable your um, people to communicate better, to have the information they need at the time they need it. Um, they also have had their fourth annual 2020 Paychecks Pulse of HR survey, which provides an in-depth look at how HR professionals are contributing to the success of companies. And I can tell you as someone who really dug into that report, it's really valuable. HR leaders really need to know who to turn to for some of these surveys. And there's a ton of information in there you can use to take back to your C-suite and actually make some, some business recommendations. So please check that out at paychecks.com slash pulse 2020. Awesome. So thank you to Work Human and Paychecks. Trish, Workplace Movie Hall of Fame, for those who have not heard one of these shows in the past, this is where we take a movie, a fairly well-known movie, hope usually. We rewatch usually. it. You know, we rewatch it. You know, so we get a new, fresh look at it. And then we sort of break down some of the, the workplace concepts, themes, things that apply from this movie to the experiences of work in, in workplaces. A couple notes on Apollo 13, Trish. Uh, 1995 release. It was the number two domestic box office gross movie of the year. Uh, only Trailed only Batman Forever. So this is a big, big hit movie. It grossed $172 million back in 1995, which uh, is, 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 is quite a bit. It was directed by Ron Howard, the main stars, Tom Hanks, Kevin Bacon, Bill Paxton, uh, Ed Harris, who was great in this movie, uh, was nominated for a couple of Academy Awards, didn't, didn't win for any of the acting awards, won a couple technical awards. Uh, Ed Harris was nominated in Best Supporting Actor and did not win. But um, super movie, for folks not familiar, anyway, the true story, right? of the Apollo 13 mission heading to the moon, three astronauts in the spaceship. Uh, something goes wrong. There's an explosion, lots of damage to the ship. And NASA has to figure out, and the astronauts as well, have to figure out a way to get back to Earth safely, where it, it sort of looks really, really dicey, right, for uh, a lot of this movie about whether or not the, these three astronauts are going to be able to come back safely. So uh, I loved this movie just as a movie, but it's got incredible workplace themes all through it, I thought, Trish. I wrote down a couple of pages of notes. Uh, my first one was really, the, uh, my first observation, I think, Trish, I'll just throw out there and, and see what you think, is competition, right? Because there was huge competition between the United States from NASA and the Russians, right, at this time. This is the time of, like, the space race and the Cold War and, you know, really, really going after your competition hard. And I'm sort of in two minds of this. On one hand, in business and in work, I, like, I think it's important to really want to win and go after your competition. But on the other side, I think sometimes we can spend way too much time worried about where our competition is doing, right? And I know you've kind of thought that way too over the years. I do. You know, again, I think it goes back to what you're trained to do. And whether it's in school, when you're a child, you're actually, you know, you're, you think you're competing against other students for the grades and really you're not, it doesn't matter. And, and same in college. And then you get into the work world and you're, you're thinking you're being pit against other people. And maybe you are a little bit, right? There's a limited pool of funds sometimes for, you know, increases or promotion spots or whatnot. So there is competition, but I don't know, the older I've gotten um, and then actually, you know, you and I having our own business, what I've learned is I really do not pay attention to what our competition, our so-called competition is doing. And it does two things. I think that I know who they are or who I think my competition is, but 
I really don't want to focus on what they're doing at all. In fact, because then I try to get in that path of like, oh, should we emulate what somebody else is doing? Is that a best practice if someone does X, Y, Z a certain way? And I think that limits um, not only your personal success, your company's success, but it also limits the way that you can even think about solving problems, which ties back to the movie, right? So I don't know, we can, we can discuss that later, but no, my answer is I really don't think you should focus on the competition at all. In fact, I, I mute and block most of my competition. So it doesn't even enter my mind because I think it can stunt your growth. Yeah, I think I think that's uh, true. I don't really care too much about what other people think. <laughs> really, I I want to I want to come up with what I think, right? And, and right. I think there's a lot of value to that. There's the other thing though about competition. One of the notes I made too, though, there was a lot of internal competition in the space program, and it came from amongst the the, the astronauts themselves. And it comes from a couple mm-hmm. levels. The first thing I I sort of know, you know, not that I just figured this out, but it's true. This uh, Apollo 13 launched in April of 1970, okay? So in July or June or July, I can't remember the exact date now, 1969 was when uh, Apollo 11 landed on the moon, right? Neil Armstrong, right. Buzz Aldrin, right? So they, they made it to the moon, right? Less than one year before Apollo 13 was going to be launched, right? So now the Apollo 13, the crew, the astronauts, everybody associated with the mission, there's an incredibly high bar that they have to, to reach just to be, just to make the, the standard. Now the standard is we go to the moon, right? You say, once we got there the one time, once NASA got there the first time, now you got to get there. Otherwise you failed, right? And so there was huge competition to live up to the expectations of the organization and the expectations really of the country at that point. And also there was huge competition amongst the crew members to be the ones who are going to be selected to be on the mission, right? There was a lot of internal kind of dogfighting there. So what do you think about that? Like just, have you been in places like there was a lot of internal competition, you know, like, like, like a culture that, 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 that's oriented that way. Cause I know I've worked in a couple. Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, starting my career in big four public accounting, that's, you know, you are, you're told you're the best of the best, the best and the brightest you are, you know, you're hiring all students basically who made straight A's probably all through high school, all through college, right? And then you get them all together, yourself included. And now you're going to start sort of force ranking people and performance and somebody's got to come out on the bottom. Somebody's got to come out on the top. So it's interesting to me to take um, environments like that and try and get people to not let the competition get the best of them because I have seen people who, who really do burn out very quickly um, when, they're, when they're solely focused on that. I think you're right. In the movie, what was interesting to me too was, you know, you're thinking about people who have had a lifelong dream mm-hmm. to go to the moon. You know, Jim Lovell, especially, you, you see that throughout his life. He, that's what he wants to do. And so to think you finally are going to get this shot and then it doesn't happen, right? That's just like today in this last year. When you think of how many, how many people, you know, you go to graduate high school. Well, you don't get a graduation. You right. don't get a prom. You go, you think about all the college graduates, they've, they've worked so hard, four years, six years, whatever it is, at, at major schools, right, to not be able to have your moment in the sun. You make it so close, right? Or what about all the people who are in professional sports or you, you name it, right? You, you finally reach the pinnacle of what it is you're going to do and then it's kind of ripped away yeah, by no fault of your own. So yeah, it's very applicable, I think, especially, I was glad we watched it during the pandemic. I think it just made me have so many, um, 
so many things to compare it to real life today. Yeah. And there was another element to this whole, the way it was set up, the space program back then was like Apollo 11 and 12 and 13 and on and on. I don't know how many they ended up with 17 or 18 by the time it ended, I think. Yeah. I know 18 got canceled. I'm not sure if 17 went. So, but they had a really um, formalized and well thought out um, pipeline and succession plan, right? Because in Apollo 13, even there's a crew change. The Apollo 13 crew wasn't even going to be Apollo 13 crew. They got bumped up, right? I don't even remember exactly why, but the whole crew got bumped up. And then one of the members of the original 13 crew was deemed medically uh, unfit for kind of a dubious reason, it turns out. Uh, to to participate in the in the in the mission, and they swapped in one of the other guys in the pipeline, right? That mm-hmm. was, um, you know, getting ready for a mission down the line, and they just swapped him in at the last minute, which was kind of crazy, right? And uh, so, two things: one is like the kind of uh, integration of that new crew member, because these this is a three person crew, right? On Apollo thirteen, they were really really tight. They were all buddies. They've been training together for months and months and months and months, and all of a sudden okay, person number three, you're out, new guy come in. There was some tension too, right? Absolutely. Integrating that guy and like, was he going to be up to speed? Is he up to snuff? Can he handle this? Can he handle the pressure? He was young. He was a younger guy, it turns out, compared to the other two astronauts. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but I thought it was interesting because it only kind of worked because NASA had that, that plan. They had that pipeline, that succession plan. It wasn't like, oh my God, astronaut A got sick. What do we do? Well, here's exactly what we're going to do. This guy goes in. I thought that was a pretty cool lesson as well. I did too. And I've worked in companies where it is fairly clear cut because what if someone leaves? What if they become sick? Especially now. What if you have a key team that's going to give a major presentation and you've got no backup planned and now someone comes down with COVID or has exposed the whole team to it, right? Who's going to step in? Um, So I do think they showed that was, that was very valuable to have that. I think the other thing, two other things in that, in that scenario specifically was you know, Kevin Bacon was the character who came in as the third guy, the replacement Jack guy, the younger guy. His, the, the, his real name, yeah. Right. And so, you know, there were some arguments, actually. And, it, and the leader, uh, Tom Hanks' character, Jim, had to sort of break things up and say, look, we are not doing this, right? We're not going to have this tension. We're not going to have this. So I think that was pretty pivotal, too. As a leader, if you have a younger, newer whatever different member on your team suddenly it's your job to make sure everyone else doesn't let the chatter kind of detract from what you're trying to do and the last thing i I thought was really important about that particular scenario was that um the character that gary sinise is playing who is left back on earth because they think he may have been exposed to measles so again put put in covid right right that was a pretty good yeah it actually, it actually worked to their benefit. And I don't think that I've ever worked in an organization where we've thought about a project in that way. Like what if, who are the, who are the key players you would put on the project? Okay. Now pull one out, put somebody brand new in who, who was practiced, right? He, to be fair, he had practiced and and everything kind of in the background. Um, But pull one of the key players out, not only to see if the, if the younger, different, newer, whatever person can perform, but then the person you're pulling out becomes the mentor, right? He was back on earth. He was the one who made sure that they were able to get back. He's the one who was trying everything back on earth behind the scenes to make sure it would work, or at least he thought it would work. Yeah, right? it was really- There a was good, a value. It was a good kind of testament to depth of expertise, right? In the Absolutely. organization, because he was so, 
adept and had been trained and had been ready to go on the mission himself that he was able to back on, on earth in the simulator, mm-hmm. figure out how to, they could conserve the power that they needed, et cetera, et cetera, Absolutely. in order to, because their power cells were diminishing and they weren't going to have enough power to make it back unless he figured out some clever ways to save power, which he did. Mm-hmm. And there were some other folks back in NASA too, who figured out some other clever ways to help them, uh, you know, keep their oxygen tanks, uh, keep their CO2 levels down and keep the oxygen uh, high yeah. enough so they wouldn't, you know, suffocate in there. I thought that was a great story about just making sure not just the people doing the job are trained, but you have that, you're sharing knowledge, the organization's got depth, you can, you can, you can react to the situations like that happened in this crew. The sure. one other thing I, I wanted to mention too was um, the classic line in this movie, right? The, what, the line that everybody remembers the most, right? Which is when the, the oxygen tanks explode and there's a big bang and there's all the warning lights come on and Jim Lovell gets on the, on the, on the comm back to uh, NASA and says, you know, the classic Houston, we have a problem, like in a calm, kind of measured, kind of controlled right. way. And, and it's kind of hacky and it's kind of a joke line now and it's repeated a thousand times. It's almost a meme probably, but honestly, without having leadership and, and without that training and without that leadership to be calm and cool and collected under those circumstances, there's no way those guys make it back, right? If they would have, if anybody would have panicked or he would have lost right. it, there's no way they make it back. So I don't know how we we train for that in the real world in our real jobs, but, or how we, how we instill that calmness. Maybe, maybe it's just take a breath before, you know, uh, you react to things or take a moment, but uh, that was just a really, really great example of leadership. I think you're right. And part of that, in my opinion, is that it's, it's baked into the person's DNA. I think that when you see those leaders, there are obviously dynamic leaders and there are leaders that are the calm, cool, collected. And it is important that you have a good mix on a project or leading a company. You don't want everyone who's dynamic. You don't want everyone who's too calm, right? You need, you need that, that. And I think that's what the movie did a good job of showing. There was a little bit of tension there. And he was the one that they turned to for that calm voice of reason, handling things appropriately. Um, I don't know. I think you can certainly do things to enhance that. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you can totally train it. I don't know that I believe that. I'm sure there would be tons of people who would argue that. Yeah. But um, yeah, he was just someone that people look to. Again, you don't have, this reminds me of a time where someone told me, you know, when you have a meeting and you tell everyone, you know, XYZ, some new thing that they have to react to, who does everyone look to in the room before they actually react? Oh, that's that person one. may not have the title. They may not be the manager, supervisor, whatever, but they're the person who's that voice of kind of reason who's going to have that reaction and guide the team. So that was, that was him. There's a, there's a line I love. It's not from this movie. It's just a line that I like to, I like to say or repeat. And it's, it goes something like this. It's probably too late to panic. So no matter mm-hmm. what the situation is, if you're getting True. to the point where, oh my God, I'm going to panic, <laughs> it, the thing's already happened. It's too late. There's nothing, panicking will not help one bit, right? So that's the yeah. one I try to remember. Yeah. I have to, to ask you on this one. It's a little bit related to that, but it's also related to what was happening back in mission control. So, you know, they're kind of going back and forth. And so not only is Jim being very calm, cool, collected for most of it. Um, have you thought at all about times in your life or other leaders you've known, maybe when you're leading in times where you feel helpless? I think a lot of leaders right now during a time of a pandemic, right? You're trying to lead your organization. You're trying to guide even your customers and your clients and you personally feel helpless. I mean, how do you, I thought they did a nice job of showing how people still stepped up 
even though they had absolutely almost no control. Yeah. Have you had times like that too? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, and that's when you look to, you know, those kind of folks in the organization, maybe have a little bit more experience. Perhaps that's the, that's the question, or maybe have a diversity of experience and maybe they've encountered takers. Yeah. They've encountered situations in other places and it's, it's, um, you definitely find out quick who you can lean on and who you can't. Right. And, uh, and speaking of, so, you know, in the course of the movie, right, the astronauts go up, big accident, you know, what do we do? We have to sort of try to figure out how to get back home. Back down in mission control, right, I thought, I thought the, the character of the flight director, his name was Gene Krantz in real life, mm-hmm. played by Ed Harris. It was a great role for him. But that character has a couple of really key things, also in that leadership vein. And I wrote this one down because it really stuck with me. They're in a meeting, right, back down in mission control to try to right. figure out how we're going to get this spaceship safely back to Earth with not enough power, oxygen maybe getting dicey, maybe other things aren't working. They're not even really sure everything that's gone wrong, right, on this ship. It's hard to know. And he says this line, and I quote, and they're all yelling at each other too, right? All the engineers and are all yelling at each other, and he shuts them all up, and he says, let's not make things worse by guessing. And that was one, it's probably my second favorite line of the movie after the Houston, we have a problem. Let's not Let's not make things worse by guessing. And I love that. And I think that's just a really good lesson as well. No matter what you're encountering, whether it's, you know, a project you're working on, you're developing something, you're going to do a sales pitch, you're going to try to, you know, do a presentation, what have you, right? Don't guess, right? You you have to know, you have to do your homework, you have to do better, right? And I just thought that was great. And I think it's something like, like, I don't know, it's a good reminder, I think, to just not let things get away from you and get, get all crazy. Like, Oh, oh I guess this will work. Right. And, and you had, to, cause in that situation you yes. had to know, you couldn't guess it was life and death. And, and yes. most, we don't run into life and death. Most of us in our workplaces, but we do do, you know, we are doing important things, right. For ourselves, for our businesses, for our colleagues and, and, and et cetera. Absolutely. So it's a good reminder. I thought. I think it is. And you know, while we may not think of it as life and death, I think definitely the way that people are thinking about, you know, running their businesses going forward and in this new year, it, it could be life and death if they make a poor decision. So it is best to educate yourself. Um, I had my my last boss in more of a corporate role. She she used to tell me, Christina used to say, don't lose your head. That was her version of it. Don't lose your head. Like, just be calm, get the facts. You can still make a decision on very few facts, right? You can be decisive, but yeah, don't lose your head about it. Don't get upset about things, you know, that it's really not going to be helpful. I think the other thing too is they showed in both that scenario and and others in the movie that there isn't just one option, right? They had a plan of what, what the one way was going to be that they were going to take off. They were going to do a thing and they were going to come back. Right. But then there was plan B and then plan B failed. And then there was plan C and D and E and F and, and all of that together, it still worked. So I think we sometimes as, as, leaders and as workers, we get in our heads. I know I do this. You think your way is the way, the best way, the only way. Quite often it's not. It's not even necessarily, you know, like if you and I are collaborating, maybe your way isn't the best way either, but it's the third, fourth person we ask or the fifth person we ask who finally interjects something where it's going to be actually the most successful. So I've, I've seen every organization I've worked in fall into that trap of just you know, you, you get set on your ways. This is the only way to do it. Yeah. Think about in technology when people are trying to implement technology, right. And they want to make the new technology look and feel just like the one that they're getting rid of. Right. You, you had to have 
coming in, into a into that situation working with uh, Oracle back in the day, right? You had to have customers that were probably saying, well, I want you to build it exactly like the one I'm getting rid of. Yeah, well, that's, that's going to be a whole other show about like software right? companies <laughs> building things that customers ask for specifically. But uh, yeah. one element of that, though, I want to call out to that's that's really rooted in this movie. And maybe it's just part of NASA culture. or Maybe it's part of an engineering culture. I'm not sure. I've never worked in an organization quite like that, which mm-hmm. was for the most part, actually pretty consistently throughout the movie, the leaders let other people do their jobs and they sort of listen to them, if that makes sense. So even in the spacecraft itself, right, they're making all their adjustments. They've got the new flight plan. They're going to try to make it back successfully to Earth. And Jim Lovell, the flight commander, gets into the pilot seat because that's what he's used to because he's been a pilot, right, his whole life. And then he realizes, oh, wait a minute. This is not my job on this flight. This is your job, Swigert, the young guy, the replacement guy. You're, you're, you're the pilot. I'm going to sit next to you, right? So he lets him do his job. And the same thing happened down in mission control when they were trying to devise the new procedures and try to create the new oxygen scrubber that they need to manufacture out of spare parts, right? When they had to right. figure out the, uh, the electronics and et cetera, et cetera. Like each little person who we see in the movie from the different engineers, from the different departments, from the guys who are in another building somewhere, if you were the expert, if that was your area of expertise, you were listened to, right? Because you were sure. obviously given that job because you were qualified to do it. They trusted that you could do it. And then it was time for that person to step up and contribute their piece. The leader didn't yes. say, oh, no, I disagree, right? It wasn't like the, the, the guy in charge just didn't overrule anybody. They, they basically listened to each person at different points. Great, in, in great the movie, observation. Which I thought was a really cool thing. Yeah, that definitely doesn't happen everywhere. Sometimes. Sometimes yeah. it does, right? Right. I mean, but that's um, the point. If you're hiring someone to do a job, let them do their job, right? Yeah. Again, we're probably, you know, as, as Gen X that you and I both are, or even in the boomers that are still in the workplace, um, I think that's hard for us. We weren't raised up that way. We were not treated that way when we were more junior employees typically. So it is hard to sort of shift gears once you are in a leadership role and now trust everyone else, right? So yeah, it's a, that takes time. It's an evolution of the workplace to make that happen. So yeah. one thing I do want to mention, um, we didn't plan on this, but um, I did the Apollo experience with Experience to Lead. Sure. Um, our friend Dick Richardson, who has been on the show, we've talked to him most recently about um, the Gettysburg experience, which you did. But um, I would say, if you're listening to the show, check out experiencetolead.com. Um, they do leadership experiences where you are literally immersed, completely immersed in a situation. And one of them that they have is Apollo. Now, I did this. I looked back. I did it in 2011. It was at NASA in Houston. You actually do some pre-work, study the Apollo 13 mission. Um, I'm not going to go all into it, but I will say the coolest part and what I was reminded of, because I haven't seen the movie since then until now. And at the very end of this, like several day experience, you wind up in real mission control that was, that was actually used for the Apollo 13 mission. So, and in the movie, it was filmed in that exact room. It wasn't a stage. It was that room, right? They did the real thing. And so they took us all into mission control. We got to sit down in mission control. And so we were all just like, oh my gosh, we're in mission control. We didn't know it, but what they did was they played about the last 15 minutes or so of the movie on the screen. So when you see the screen that they were looking at the astronauts and talking back and forth with in real life, like now we're sitting in their real seats watching this movie. It was amazing. Like it just gives you a whole different perspective on 
how a leader would feel, how scary it felt. You just almost feel it, you know? So anyway, just shout out to our friend, um, Dick Richardson at Experience to Lead. It's, yeah. if, you, if you're into this movie and you need some leadership training for you or your team, I think that's a good one to, to check out. Yeah, this is a, I really enjoyed watching this movie. My only complaints are, are a couple. One is it's a little long, you know, by modern standards, we probably cut about 20 minutes out of this deal. It, it, right. we're, we're about 45 minutes into the movie before like the rocket takes off in the first oh. place, right? So yeah. um, so you gotta, you gotta put up with that a little bit. Um, my other complaint is kind of just a very personal one. This movie's 25 years old or something like that. And I've subscribed to every streaming service there is. I'm paying millions of dollars for streaming services, yet I still had to pay $3.99 to rent this movie, this 25-year-old movie that's probably been on TV a thousand times. And I got one last little nitpick, Trish. I was not in love with the Jim Lavelle wife character a little bit. She kind of made it all about her at some stage in the movie. Like, he's about to get in a rocket, blast at the speed of a speeding bullet up to the moon, risk his damn life. And she's like, oh, I don't know if I want to come to the launch. Uh, the kids are busy with school. Come on, Jim LaBelle wife, get over yourself. Don't make this about you. There you go. I wonder if that's a male perspective because I think, you know, <laughs> as a mother, I don't know. That would be really difficult if you think that something could go wrong. And look, years later, uh, the Challenger exploded when they took off. So their families were there and watched that. Uh, that would be very traumatic. So I, I see both sides. Yeah, I was, I was not high on her. And there's a lot of 70s fashion faux pas throughout this movie. And did you oh, I love all that. I love the, I love the 70s groove that yeah, they had I, going on. Was but, very, um, I, was, I was watching all the design. They did a good job designing those like 70s houses. And, and, they and, did, yeah. And every astronaut drove a sports car. If you, did you notice that? When they, they oh, were absolutely. Scenes where you see the astronauts kind of off-duty driving around. They all had Corvettes. I, think I, I bet that's true today. Like, yeah. that's a cool job. Being an astronaut, are you kidding me? Like, especially then, right? Yeah, I, yeah. I, I will say one last thing was that, uh, what was it, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin um, go to watch, like as they're trying to get come, bring them back to earth, right? And they go to the nursing home to watch with Jim's mother. She has no clue who those two are. They're just like, yeah. she's like, oh my gosh, do you guys, are you in the space program yeah. too? Yes, Neil and Armstrong. They're the ones the that space went to program. Yeah, and then, I guess one last thing for me is obviously, you know, we know Neil Armstrong, we know Buzz Aldrin, we know the Apollo 13 story mainly because of the almost tragedy and the, and the success they came back alive in, in, in this great movie. Trish, who was the last man to walk on the moon? I don't know. Do you? Nobody knows. I don't know either. And that's a shame in a way, right? Like, maybe nice. that's the way to wrap this. Like, we should really kind of, you know, raise up that person and, and those folks as well, because it did get really routine after a while, sad to say. And, uh, you know. Okay, I, I have it. I have it. Gene right, Cernan. Gene Cernan. All right. That's what it says. Yeah. And I guess my 19, last. December 11th, 1972. Okay. Apollo 17. Well, that fits them because I think at the end they do a little bit of a recap and they say that 18 uh, never happened. Gotcha. One of them was slated, I forget which one, one of them was slated to go up on 18. I think, um, was it, I think it's Bill Paxton's character was uh, scheduled to go oh, up on 18. Yeah, no, I know we're going to wrap, but shout out to Bill Paxton, my, one of my favorite actors, sadly died a few years ago, st also stars in the legendary movie Twister, Trish, that we're going to probably cover on the Workplace <laughs> Hall of Fame very, very soon. All right. All right. Love the movie. Recommend watching it. A lot of great lessons for work, workplace leadership, lots of great stuff there. I, I really like this one. 
Me too. Thanks everyone for listening as always. All right. Thanks to our friends at Paychecks and Work Human. Thanks for listening to the HR Happy Hour Show for Trish McFarland. My name's Steve Bowes. We will see you next time and bye for now.